It has already been a full service, hasn't it? I, uh, I remember like one of the first times I started going to a Presbyterian church. I was in college, and I'd grown up in a church that didn't really have any sort of liturgical tradition. And I remember having a conversation with my pastor saying, like, I love that uh, I love that I get to hear the gospel like over and over again before even the sermon gets preached. And then I made the mistake of telling him, and it rescues a bad sermon. Um, <laughs> I, I meant well. I wasn't implying that he delivered bad sermons or any such thing, but um, I'm, I'm taking comfort in that, though, this morning. Um, but thank you for, for uh, Gretchen and Tom and Brian for, for leading us up to this point. It is, uh, it's been a real blessing. Let's... Uh, Go before God before we jump into this text. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you this morning for calling us into your presence and for loving us enough to speak to us. God, I pray that as we look at these words, which are comforting and challenging all at the same time, uh, Lord, we pray that uh, your spirit, who inspired them to be written, would do a work in our hearts. And Father, help us to see you as you are, as our great God and King. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to bring him glory in our hearing, God. And so in his great name we pray. Amen. Now before we, we dive into this passage, I want to read you a, 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 a story, it's a little story, from an admittedly strange uh, kid's book called Squids Will Be Squids. Um, it's a book that I bought uh, Katie is exempt from this. Um, she, she has much better taste than I do. But it's a story called Little Walrus. It's, it's intended to be, Squids Will Be Squids is, it's intended to be a sort of modern day uh, Aesop's fables. So just have that in your head as we read this. Little Walrus goes like this. Little, wal little Walrus's mom told her to always tell the truth. One day the phone rang. Little Walrus was the only one home, so she answered it. Hello, said Little Walrus. Hello, Little Walrus, said Whale. Is your mom home? No, said Little Walrus. She's out having the hair taken off her lip. <laughs> Moral, you should always tell the truth. But if your mom is out having the hair taken off her lip, you might want to forget a few of the details. All right. Now that is in many ways life with kids. And one of the jobs of parents is to help children navigate the nuances of various social situations, to understand what constitutes appropriate behavior in different contexts. So we teach, we train, and to a point we domesticate our children. Now this is a good and right thing for us to do uh, with our kids who are still learning about the world. But unfortunately, people have this impulse with God. Kids can say and do things that make us uncomfortable. God often says and does things that make us uncomfortable. Correcting and reining in our children is a good thing for us to do, but if we try to do that with God, the results are disastrous. But that is one of the things that we observe here in this passage. Our text today is essentially one story, uh, one act in three different scenes. 
And Mark uses a, a tool, a literary tool that biblical scholars refer to as intercalation, in which he takes uh, one story and he wraps it around another one in order to make a greater point. Uh, other theologians or uh, biblical scholars refer to Mark's use of this tool, which he uses quite a bit as the Markin sandwich, which I, I like that more. That sounds more fun. The first two scenes in this act give us incorrect responses to Jesus. In the first, we see Jesus' blood relatives try to domesticate Jesus, try to get him to fall in line with them. Jesus is saying and doing things that make them uncomfortable, and so they try to control, they try to restrain him. In the second, we see the religious leaders try to discredit Jesus. They don't like what he has to say, and they try to make others believe that he's doing the work of Satan. And in the last scene, we get a picture of the true family of God, what a right, a correct response to Jesus looks like. All right, so we're going to go ahead and jump in, starting with verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that he could not even eat. As we've already seen in Mark's gospel up to this point, Jesus is like notorious. People are clamoring to see him. He is constantly being bombarded with crowds. His fame has spread to a ridiculous degree. And the demands of his ministry have become so intense. There are so many people coming to him that he doesn't have the time to take care of himself. He doesn't even have time to eat. Well, he's back in his home, hometown now, and as often happens in your hometown, people take notice. They see crowds following Jesus everywhere, and they see Jesus tired and thin. Now, when I, when I read this passage, I think of my own family. Uh, on my mom's side of the family, we're, we're Italian. And so I have an image in my head of Italian aunts and grandmas saying, too thin, too thin. Uh, growing up when we go and, and visit my, my grandmother, I think within like five minutes, sandwiches would just like appear in front of me and my brother. It's like, how did that get there? It was glorious. So that's kind of what I have in my head. So if first century Jewish culture was anything like Italian culture, right, the sight of Jesus tired and thin would have led to some real concern and a lot of talking. Have you seen Jesus? Ooh, he's not looking too good. Right, and what's, what's he doing with all these crowds? Well, this talk made its way to Jesus' family, and so we read in verse 21. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. When Jesus' family heard about everything that was taking place, they immediately asserted that he was insane. And so they set to bring him home. They attempted to literally take charge of him since he had seemingly lost control. Now, the Greek word translated to seize is krateo, and it's used elsewhere in Mark to describe someone being placed under arrest. This was the intensity with which they were going after Jesus. And the claim that he was out of his mind may very well have been Jesus' family's attempt to save face to say, this isn't us, right? this isn't how we raised him, he's just lost it. They looked at all of the attention that he was gaining, and they were likely nervous about the growing opposition as well, and we'll see that in the next section. 
And their impulse was to take control of Jesus, to domesticate him. So instead of seeing him as he was, the, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, they saw him as a hungry aesthetic who needed restraining. Jesus said and did things that challenged conventions, that made people uncomfortable. But instead of listening to the king as the king, they tried to rein him in like one would do a toddler. Shh, Jesus, don't say that. Guys, don't listen. He's hungry. They tried to soften his rough edges. For that is not how you treat a king. But friends, the attempt to domesticate Jesus didn't stop in the first century. We do this all of the time. Jesus said and did things that still make us uncomfortable. And instead of submitting to him as king, allowing his word to remain, we brush certain things aside or we explain them away. Some groups might be inclined to do this with some of Jesus' hard sayings on sin or judgment on his second coming. These same people are often inclined to diminish his exclusive claims or his miracles. Other groups may affirm those things, but often want to downplay what he said about greed or money. They want to pretend that his critiques of the religious establishment don't apply to them. They might, ad- they might admire Jesus for befriending sinners, but they don't seem to want to live out Jesus' commands to do the same. The reality is, if we are allowing Jesus to be Jesus, if we're going to acknowledge him for who he is, King and Lord, if we're going to allow his word to remain, we are all going to be made uncomfortable at one point or another. He is going to refine us. He is going to challenge our assumptions. So the question isn't whether or not that's going to happen. The question is, what are you going to do when it does? Are you going to change your assumptions? Or are you going to try to domesticate the king of the universe? The one that Paul tells us, I'll show you that in a minute. The one that Paul affirms is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. The one in whom and for whom everything was made. I think he gets to call the shots. So consider for a moment, where are you tempted to domesticate Jesus? If not in word, then in action. Where are you not living up to what Jesus calls you to? Where are you tempted to smooth out his rough edges? What hard sayings are you struggling with? I'm a, I'm a big fan of C.S. Lewis, and I don't get tired of, I don't get tired of reading him. Uh, you may get tired of me quoting him, um, but that's probably not going to stop, so sorry. Uh, now, in his Chronicles of Narnia, I think he was extremely wise in depicting Jesus as a lion. Why? Because lions can't be domesticated. So let's not try. (laughs) Jesus is the king. We change for him. He doesn't change for us. All right, so scene one highlighted one wrong approach to Jesus, and scene two shows us another. 
Jesus' family tried to domesticate Jesus, to rein him in, to smooth over his rough edges. And in the next scene, we see the reaction of the religious establishment to Jesus. And we're told at the beginning of verse 22 that some scribes came down from Jerusalem. Well, Matthew in his gospel adds that it was scribes and Pharisees. So we have scribes and Pharisees here, teachers, experts in the law, people who are passionate about faithful adherence to the law. Well, they have come uh, down from Jerusalem. Now, that's confusing because Capernaum is north of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem is high, so they are lowering in elevation to go north. So they're coming down from Jerusalem. Everyone comes down from Jerusalem no matter what direction they're headed to. Just keep, keep that in mind. Um, so they've come down from Jerusalem. They have made the three to four day trek to get to where Jesus is. They're part of a delegation likely there to, to see what this upstart Jesus is about and to find more reasons to make accusations against him. And what's their, what's their reaction to Jesus after they hear him teach, after they see him doing various miracles? Well, the reaction of the Pharisees was different than that of Jesus' family, but it was related. See, both groups were disturbed by the events that had taken place up until that point, and both wanted Jesus to cease his ministry. His family planned to stop Jesus by bringing him home, and the religious leaders planned to stop Jesus by discrediting him. In going about his ministry, Jesus was causing all sorts of problems for the religious establishment. And this may be, this may be due in large part to the fact that Jesus did what they did. He, he taught, but he did it better. In the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Mark 1.38, Jesus declares that the thing that he came to do one of his primary reasons for being on the earth was to preach. And in Mark 1.22, we see the people's reaction to his preaching. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. The religious leaders had the opportunity to hear what Jesus said, though, to, to see the people's reaction to him, to witness the miracles that he did in order to confirm his teaching. But instead of looking at the evidence and recognizing that he was sent from God, they clung to their pride and they conspired to destroy Jesus. Earlier in chapter 3, this was seen through a conspiracy to kill Jesus. And as that is working itself out, they now attempt to ruin his reputation by claiming that he is empowered by Beelzebul to accomplish his mighty, his mighty works. And this is what we read in Mark 3.22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. Now, in a way, the accusation of these leaders complements that of Jesus' family. Right? They don't simply affirm that he's gone mad. They, they claim to know its origin. Yes, he is insane, and I know why. He's not just overtaken with insanity. He's been taken hold of by Beelzebul. Now, that name, it refers to Satan, and it can either mean Lord of the Flies or the Prince of Demons. And their intention was to give a sort of official ruling as to the true nature of this man, Jesus, who was attracting so much attention. And this was the best that they could come up with. 
So how does Jesus respond to their accusations? Well, verse 23 tells us that he responds to them in parables. Jesus uses parables or wise sayings to then set up a logical argument that ultimately reveals how ridiculous their claim was. And this is how Jesus responds. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So we can hear the logical flow of Jesus' argument. Jesus says, I have just cast out demons. Now, if I'm doing this by Satan's power, then Satan is actually working against himself. But that would be absurd. Just as a house or a kingdom can't stand if it's divided against itself, so Satan will bring about his own destruction if he's going about undoing his own works. Furthermore, in order to enter the house of a strong man and plunder it, I have to first tie him up. Two obvious conclusions can be seen from Jesus' parables. First, that Jesus can't be in collusion with Satan because he is constantly going about undoing his works. And the second is that Jesus is far stronger than Satan because he has the ability to tie up the strong man and undo his works. The Pharisees' attempt to discredit Jesus, they completely backfire. They want to end his ministry by questioning both his sanity and his affiliations, but he shuts them down completely. Now, unfortunately, just like the attempts to domesticate Jesus, the attempts to discredit Jesus didn't stop in the first century either. There are a lot of caricatures about Jesus today, misrepresentations of who he was and what he said. Attempts to claim that the sum total of Jesus' work on earth was overwhelmingly negative, and that all religion is ultimately destructive. A famous example of this can be seen with the, the late atheist writer Christopher Hitchens, who argues in his book, God is Not Great, with the uplifting subheading, How Religion Poisons Everything. Just a real tolerant guy. Um, he argues there that religion kills. And he goes on to give accounts of religion-fueled violence in Belfast, Beirut, Bombay, Bethlehem, and Baghdad. He's got a thing for cities that start with B, apparently. But it is his belief that religious belief inevitably leads to hatred, racism, and violence. And a lot of his ire is is directed toward Christianity. But let's think about that claim in regards to Jesus' actual teachings, what he said and did? How do we contribute hatred and violence to the man who called his followers to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? Or who said, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Someone who redefined what it meant to be a neighbor, no longer defining it along racial lines, who says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. These teachings, among others, have changed the world for the better. And what's amazing is that I'm encountering lots of of people making that same argument who aren't Christians. One such example was seen in a book review 
for the New, Statement, the New Statesman uh, is written by an atheist named John Gray, who points out that, quote, secular liberals dismiss Christianity as a fairy tale, but their values and their view of history remain essentially Christian. Christianity brought with it moral re- a moral revolution. The powerless came to be seen as God's children and therefore deserving of respect as much as the highest in society. Christianity came into a Roman world which could only be described as brutal. And so Gray continues, he says, Caesar killed a million Gauls and enslaved a million more. Across the Roman world, wailing infants could be found on the roadside, on rubbish heaps or in drains, left there to perish. Female infants who were rescued would be raised as slaves or sold to brothels. There was absolutely no sense at this time that the poor and the weak had any rights or any value. It was Christianity that changed that mindset. And so Gray, again, who is an atheist, says the triumph of Christianity was a rupture in Western civilization. There is nothing at all self-evident about the equal intrinsic worth of all human beings or the inherent preciousness of individual persons. These values which secular thinkers nowadays take for granted were placed at the heart of the Western world by Christianity. And he goes on to say this. In the final analysis, liberal humanism is a footnote to the Bible. The attempts to discredit Jesus today still backfire. And they shouldn't be taken lightly. As Jesus goes on to explain in the verses that follow, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Verses 28 to 30 introduce us to a challenging topic, the unpardonable sin. And what is that exactly? Well, one theologian describes this sin as, quote, unusually malicious, willful rejection and slander against the Holy Spirit's work, attesting to Christ and attributing that work to Satan. See, in this context, the religious leaders had repeatedly seen clear demonstrations of the Spirit's work and power in and through the life, ministry, and teachings of Jesus. But they willfully reject Jesus' authority and teaching. And not only that, they, they, they take the next step and they call His works, the works empowered by the Spirit, evil. This demonstrates an extraordinary hardness of heart towards God and His work. Now, many, when, when thinking about this text, worry that at some point they may have committed the unpardonable sin. But that wouldn't be the case, as the biblical scholar F.F. Bruce points out. The fact that the unpardonable sin involves such extreme hardness of heart and lack of repentance indicate that those who fear they have committed it, yet still have sorrow for sin in their heart, and desire to seek after God, certainly do not fall in the category of those who are guilty of it. All right, so we've looked at two wrong approaches to Jesus. And now in this last scene, we see the correct response. And that's outlined in verses 31 to 35. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here 
are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So back in verse 21, his family came out to restrain Jesus. They thought that he had lost his mind. And now we see them making another appearance. And and why were they coming back? Well, we don't really know. But the expectation, regardless, right? First century Palestine, your mom and your brothers, your family comes to see you. What do you do? You drop everything. That would have been the expectation. This was a communal culture where family was at the center. And honoring one's father and mother is one of the Ten Commandments. It's a big deal. But instead of dropping everything, Jesus took it as an opportunity to point to a loyalty and a commandment that went beyond the claims that any earthly family could hold. The most important thing that one can do in this life is demonstrate a loyalty and a humble submission to God, a desire to do His will above all else. And those who are committed to doing it with you, those are your family. Those are your mother and brother and sisters. Jesus is, in effect, standing the, nor- the normal cultural values on their heads. Right? The saying would have been earth-shattering at the time. Jesus was telling a group of people whose identity was founded on their lineage that blood isn't the most important thing. It's not the ultimate tie that binds. What is? A desire to do the will of God. And what does that look like here in this passage? Humble submission to the teachings of Jesus. The people that Jesus pointed out as his true relatives were those who were seated in a circle around him, with him at the center. These were people who allowed Jesus to speak for himself, who didn't make any attempts to domesticate or discredit him. Jesus was their authority. He was their king. So ask yourself, is he yours? Are there places in your life where you are softening or diminishing his teaching? Are you committed to his will? Are you taking the time to hear from him? And when you do, who gets to be the authority? Is it him and his word, or is it your own preconceived notions, your own ideals and opinions? Friends, this is an adjustment for us. We, We live in a culture that praises the rugged individual. We are used to democratic processes. If you don't like the person in charge, just wait a few years. You could vote them out. But Jesus doesn't call us into the democratic republic of the kingdom, or the democratic republic of God. We're called into the kingdom of God, which means that he is our king. We don't get to vote him out of office. He is in charge and we submit. Now that can sound like a scary thing to us, but not so when we consider who we're submitting to. Jesus addresses our concerns in Mark 10 when he he instructs his disciples saying, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. See, we don't like submitting to those in authority because we are used to people abusing 
their power. And Jesus calls that out. But he goes on to admonish his followers. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. This is how Jesus defines leadership. This is what rule looks like for him. And in the next verse, he shows that it's not merely a standard that he wants his disciples to follow. No, it's one that he plans to live out. It's one that he was currently living out at the time. But we would see its full extent at the cross. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Our King, the one who calls the shots, the one who has authority, the one who gets to tell us what reality is, he is the one who uses his power to wash the feet of his disciples. He is the one who triumphs by laying down his life on the cross, speaking words of love and forgiveness until the very end. Friends, this is our king. This is what authority looks like in the kingdom of God. Jesus does call the shots. But I can't think of a more comforting reality. Can you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son. And we thank you for the reality that you have given him all power and authority. We thank you that he is not simply an elected official, but that he is our king. And that he gets to tell us what's what. That he gets to define reality. Father, I pray that you would, by your spirit, work in our hearts so that we might fall in line. Father, forgive us for times when we have been tempted to domesticate Jesus, to soften the message, to ignore certain aspects of who he is and what he calls us to. Forgive us for ways that we have potentially explicitly discredited him or have done so with the way that we act. Father, help us to put Jesus at the center of our lives. Help us to submit to him. We need you in order to do that, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We have the privilege of being the body of Christ.